Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to see you, so good to be with you. Uh, we are gathered today in celebration of the single most significant event in human history. And typically, Easter is full of excitement and joy. And if you maybe grew up around the church, someone would say, He is risen. And then other people would say, you know, you know how, okay, good. Just trying to gauge the crowd here. Uh, but as you may have noticed from this video, um, it seemed fitting to us that before we celebrate the good news of Easter, we would take a moment to recognize the bad news of this world. It seemed fitting to us. In the last few years, I think it's fair to say it has not been easy for anyone. Since March of 2020, we've all experienced some sort of hardship. We've been broken as a country. We've been humbled as a people. We've been reminded in the worst way that our lives are fragile and this world is fragile. We have all grieved over the COVID pandemic or the racial pandemic or the mental health pandemic or the economic pandemic. And this flashlight video shows us that everywhere you look, people are carrying burdens we can't see. Everybody is struggling in one way or another, and it's in the grief and in the loss that the big questions of life start to press in on us. Questions like, is there more to life than this? Where can I find meaning? Where can I find joy that isn't circumstantial? Where can I find hope? And I am convinced that you are in the right place for all of those questions. And today we're going to open the Word of God, and the Bible is going to speak to all these questions. But here's the thing. Often when you open the Bible, this is important. We read it in its cultural context, which is important. Or you read it in its theological context, which is important. But oftentimes we fail to read the Bible in its emotional context. And so today as we open the Word of God, I want to read to you the story of Easter. The story that contains everything that we are looking for. But I want us to invite us not just to hear the story today that maybe you've heard before, but I want to invite you to feel the story the way that maybe the first disciples felt it. So in John chapter 20, starting in verse 1, John tells us this. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And she ran and found Simon Peter. And the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body away. They've taken the Lord's body away out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. And Peter and the other disciples, they started out for the tomb. And they were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in. And he saw the linen wrappings laying there. But he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. And he noticed the linen wrappings laying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. And then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must raise from the dead. And then they went home. But Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they put him. And she turned to leave, and then she saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. She's blinded by grief. 
Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. (laughs) Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and she cried out, Rabboni, which in Hebrew means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus says, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave him, she gave them his message. So if we're not careful, we will pass right over the emotional context of this story. But there's something happening here that's so powerful that we need to pay attention to. Jesus asks the question, resurrected Jesus, first question he asks is, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And this question was addressed to Mary Magdalene, but it has a universal ring to it. And it's so important for us to be curious about our tears. It's important to pay attention to when we cry because tears reveal to us what is treasured and what is tragedy. They may even contain the secret to what is true hope. The author, Frederick Beekner, he says, pay attention to the things that bring a tear to your eye or a lump in your throat because they are the signs that the Holy One is drawing near. So before we move on, let me remind us of who it is that's crying. Her name is Mary of Magdala. We know her as Mary Magdalene. And in Luke chapter 8, the Bible tells us Jesus healed her of seven demons. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long she had been tormented by these demons, but it tells us that after she's healed, she starts following Jesus along with the disciples and starts to support the ministry. Something in Jesus was so transformational to Mary that she gave up her life to be a student of Jesus. He was her rabbi. And Mary was an eyewitness to so many glorious things, but she was also an eyewitness to the great injustice of the world. Her teacher had been taken away from her. Now, can you imagine just for a moment what it personally would have been like to have experienced personal healing from Jesus, that he he lays his hands on you and you're healed from the demons that torment you? And then can you imagine what it was like to personally follow him as a disciple to witness the miracles firsthand, to sit by Jesus around the campfire at night, to wake up and be around Jesus in the cool of the morning, to know what it was like to pray with Jesus, to know his sense of humor, to know the sound of his laugh, to know the tone of his singing voice. Mary had been with Jesus every day for three years. He was her leader. He was her teacher. He was her friend. Jesus meant the world to Mary. And that's why she's at the tomb before the sun is even up on Sunday morning. Because she's crushed by what she's experienced and she wants to be near him again because her hero is gone. Maybe maybe you've had someone like this in your life. Someone who is so strong and so brave and so capable that just being around them makes you feel stronger and braver and more capable. They make you feel lifted up and strengthened. That's what heroes do in the world. They make it feel safe for us. They provide comfort and guidance and they make up for where you lack. Heroes can make you feel courageous though you are not courageous. Someone like this in our family was my great uncle Johnny. This is my grandma's youngest brother. My grandma had 10 siblings, and Uncle Johnny was the youngest of 10. And somehow, being the youngest of 10, he was the leader in the family, and he was a hero to all of us. 
Everyone just thought Uncle Johnny was so cool and so kind and so strong. And he had served in the military and won medals for his service there. And he was a follower of Jesus, but like he wasn't a weirdo about it. Like he was vocal about following Jesus, but somehow was like still the most fun guy at the party, which is not the case like ever. And so, but that, that was Uncle Johnny, and I was young in the faith, and I, I had become a follower of Jesus, and looking at Uncle Johnny, it made it easier for me to follow Jesus, because if, if he follows Jesus, then, then I can follow Jesus, and, and it moved me to be around him, and, and he made everything better, and in the summer before my freshman year of college, Uncle Johnny was diagnosed with cancer, and it, it crushed everyone. It's been 25 years since this happened, and my mom can still hardly talk about it. I was texting her for the details of the story, and it was difficult for her to engage this. But I'll never forget visiting Uncle Johnny in the hospital towards the end of his story. And I I remember watching that other people had to help him eat, and other people had to help him drink, and other people had to help him go to the bathroom, and he was only 47 years old. And this was terrifying for me as a kid. Seeing him like that really shook me because the first time I recognized something, that if death could come for Uncle Johnny, then death could come for anyone. And all of a sudden, the world felt a little more dangerous for me, and I felt a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more helpless. And this is what Jesus was like. This is who Jesus was. He made you feel stronger, safer, more capable, and during his life, he only used his good to serve the vulnerable and to do good. He only used his power for good and over time Mary and the disciples grew to love him. So to watch the one that they love be falsely accused, to be unjustly tried, then to be beaten and insulted with a crown of thorns put on your head and a mocking purple robe put on your back. To watch their friend experience that and then ultimately to watch their friend be crucified and to be buried, to witness all of that would have been utterly devastating for Mary. So when Jesus asked Mary, why are you crying? There are so many possible answers. She could have said, I'm crying because life is broken and death will swallow us all. I'm crying because my friend Jesus, this perfect person, that even if he gets destroyed by hate and evil, then that means good never wins. That means there is no triumph. That means death is coming for us all. And if that is true, then there is no hope. And this is an occasion for weeping. Friends, death is an occasion for tears. Saying goodbye is an occasion for tears. Mary is having a hard time letting go. She's having a hard time saying goodbye. And we know what this is like from our own experience. All of the small goodbyes of this life remind us of the final big goodbye of this life. If you've sent kids off to college, you know what this is like. If you have friends or family who live far away, you know what it's like to say goodbye and the sadness that lives in that. I remember the first day our oldest daughter, Harper, went to preschool. And how hard that is for our family for three hours of preschool. Like, we, we picked out her clothes the night before and, like, ironed them, I think. <laughs> we set our alarm clocks early and made a huge protein-filled breakfast for our three-year-old. And we took her to school together, and we walk her to her class, and we, we don't go past the threshold, and she walks in with her oversized backpack and water bottle. And it's like three hours of preschool. And we walk away from the school in absolute mess. 
and we sit in the car and cry and scroll through photos of our daughter. <laughs> Three hours. We have three daughters now, and if you know, if you're a parent, you know the third daughter, you just open the van door and tell them. <laughs> I think the preschool is that way. Good luck. <laughs> it's scary to say goodbye. It's scary. So you cry. Goodbyes are hard. This is why military homecoming videos are so emotional. Because there's a, there's a part of you that's not sure they were going to come back. It makes it sad. And that final goodbyes are even worse. One of the many ways COVID has devastated us is that you couldn't visit people in the hospital. And there was in some instances that, that COVID protocols took away the final goodbye from people. Because hospitals wouldn't allow you in the room. And there's a grief there that's hard to explain. To this day, I can hardly bear the finality of a funeral. When you go to the graveside, and the moment when the casket is lowered into the ground, just how utterly helpless and powerless you feel. It's scary, and it's sad, and you walk back to your car numb and grieved and wondering, what, what is the purpose of this life? Because in that moment, you recognize that you no more have power to hold on to the people that you love than you have the power to hold on to your life. So you cry. That's why we cry. But I submit to you there's a deeper reason we cry and a deeper reason that Mary is crying. You see, the Bible teaches us that we are made in the image of God. And that means eternity has been placed in our hearts. And that means that God's design is still echoing inside of us. Even though sin has ruptured everything, God's design is still in there. And because we were made in the image of God, there is a truth deep within our bones and there is a secret deep inside of our hearts that we cannot shake and we were not designed to shake. And here is that secret. Here is that truth. You and I were not designed to make peace with death. You and I were not designed to make peace with death. Deep within you and I, there is a longing for life and there is a hatred of death. Death is our enemy. That's built into us. So when someone we love dies, we feel the sorrow at a deep level because we know it's not supposed to be this way. There's something in you that knows this can't be the end. And our tears, they put us in touch with the deepest reality of the universe. That love is supposed to be forever. Love demands eternity. That's what the image of God inside of us is communicating. It's what John, this, this author of John chapter 20, also wrote John chapter 3 verse 16. The most well-known verse in the Bible that God loved the world so much. He loved us so much. That he sent his son for us so that those who believe would have eternal life. Love demands eternity. God's love leads to eternity. Love is designed to be forever. Love leads to life eternal. And therein lies the promise of Easter. And therein lies the glory of Easter. And this truth is the hope of the world. The resurrection teaches us that love's demand for eternity shall, in fact, be satisfied. 
The resurrection teaches us that love's demand for eternity shall, in fact, be satisfied. This reality is known to Jesus, and it's from this context. We can read the last part of this story differently in terms of tone because we see something that Jesus knew when he spoke this. So let me read it to you again in the emotional context. Jesus, with this understanding in his mind, verse 15 says, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. So she said, if they've taken him away, tell me where it is and I'll go and get him. Mary, Jesus said, and she turned and cried out, Rabboni. So why are you crying? I think is Jesus being playful. Why are you crying? In Mary's deepest moment of grief, Jesus offers her the thrill of hope. And Mary thinks he's the gardener, which to me is just this sweet picture of the magnitude of what God is doing. I love this little detail because it ties us back to where the whole story began in a first garden. Did you know the whole story of creation started in a garden and that's where it all went wrong? In an instant, death entered the world through a garden. Sin overcame our first parents in a garden. Everything that is broken is because of what happened in that garden. Death is introduced to the story through a garden. And here you have Jesus as a gardener. Are you kidding me? (laughs) A gardener in a second garden saying, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And Mary is the first one to see the beauty of God's plan unfolding before her life, before her eyes. Because now, praise God, life is entering the world through a garden. Sin is being defeated in a garden. Everything that was broken is being made whole because of what is happening in this second garden. There is a reversal of the curse. Where there was once defeat, there is now triumph. The empty tomb is evidence of a victory. And something is being done here that can speak to every tear in every eye throughout all of human history. Something is happening here. Something is being demonstrated here. Something is being accomplished here that can speak to every tear ever cried ever in the world's history and it's this that in the resurrection Jesus proves he is God incarnate in whom death has no claim in the resurrection Jesus proves he is God incarnate in whom death has no claim in the resurrection one more time Jesus is proving that he is God incarnate in whom death has no claim Grace Church why does this matter Why does the hope of the world hang in the balance of that sentence? Because if Jesus remains in the grave, that means God did not accept his payment of sin. And if God didn't accept his payment of sin, that means we still owe a debt. And if we still owe a debt to God, that means we sit here responsible for our sins. And if we are responsible for our sins, we have no reason to hope. We should grieve, we should cry, we should weep, we should put away the flowers, take off the nice clothes and all go home. There is nothing hopeful if Christ remains in the grave. But if Jesus raises from the dead, well, then that changes everything. That means in the broken, beaten, crucified body of Jesus, all of my sin, all of your sin was paid for, atoned for, covered, And now, because of the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus, 
death no longer has claim over you. And death no longer has claim over me. The story of the universe reversed, which means the story of your life can reverse. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible says that I read to my children, in the resurrection of Jesus, everything sad came untrue. Everything that was sad came untrue. That when he died, I died. That when he went in the tomb, I went in the tomb. That when he rose from the dead, that means I can raise from the dead. Everything that happened in him vicariously happened to me. And that's why he says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? It's powerful and it's beautiful. Which begs the question, is this real? Is this possible? Is this too good to be true? I've asked you to engage the story emotionally. Now just take a moment to engage the story intellectually. A pastor named Tim Keller, he gives, this res- he gives this illustration regarding the resurrection. He says, imagine one day you get a letter in the mail from a very well-known law firm with very official-looking stationery. And in the letter, it tells you that someone you don't know and a relative you've never met has passed away and they've left you tens of millions of dollars. And all you have to do is call this number to receive the reward that is yours given to you by your relative. Now, instantly, you would be skeptical because of the amount of scams that live out there in the world, and you would have tons of questions. It is guaranteed that we would all be skeptical. But you would call that number. (laughs) You'd call. Why? Because the offer is too great. The possibility bears too much significance. And so it is with the resurrection of Jesus. The offer is too great. The possibility is too significant. You must look into it. You must call. Because listen, the resurrection just doesn't offer you a vague notion of an afterlife someday. It offers you a renewed body in a renewed world where you and your loved ones walk with your creator forever in unhindered intimacy to the glory of God. It offers you hope that heals all sadness. Or as the hymn writers used to say, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Or D.A. Carson, the theologian, says, you are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. So if you're here today and you're skeptical, I get it. I get it. But here are the claims for you to consider. The Christian belief is that there is a creator who's responsible for all this. And he's good. He's a good father. And he's uniquely revealed himself in Jesus. And we know this just from secular history, not biblical history. Secular history tells us there was a historical Jesus who grew up around Galilee and ultimately ended up in Jerusalem. And this historical Jesus was historically killed on a Roman cross. And one of the great mysteries of the ancient world is that his body cannot be found. And we know from history, secular history, that his disciples, the men and women who were transformed by him and transformed by this event, that they took this story and they birthed from their lives The message of Christianity was birthed because of what they experienced and what they saw. And this message is spreading to this day. And they all lived and died sharing and spreading this message. That's what secular history tells us. And that is something to be considered. If you raised your flashlight and said you were born before 1980, you might remember this. If you were born after 1980, just stay with me. If you were born before 1980, you might might remember a political scandal called Watergate. 
It happened in the 1970s. Yeah, you remember. When Richard Nixon's uh, administration, they covered up some illegal wiretapping activity and a break-in to the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. And this scandal ultimately led to President Nixon's resignation. And there was a man involved in that named Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was known as the hatchet man on President Nixon's team. Now, I'm just going to let you take that nickname and decide what that means to you. The hatchet man. That's his nickname. So he served time in prison, and during his time in prison, he later came to faith in Christ, and he was personally moved from skeptic to believer because he started to look at the lives of the disciples, the people that followed Jesus, and the pain and suffering that they endured as followers of Jesus. And he knew firsthand how hard it was to keep a secret when you're threatened. And so in his biography, Chuck Colson says this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. No one wants to die for a lie. And if you were going to spread a lie and spread a great conspiracy, you certainly wouldn't start the scandal of the Easter story in the ancient world with a woman being the first eyewitness. In the ancient world, women were not allowed to testify in court. They were seen as untrustworthy. It is a broken, dark world, but that was the status of the world. So if you were going to spread a massive conspiracy, you would never say that the first eyewitness was a woman who had previously been demon-possessed. That's not how you design a scandal. But something happened here that's worth considering. So even if you have questions, even if you're skeptical, you should look into this. Because the same group of people who were eyewitnesses to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, those are the same people who were grieved and devastated by the cross. And they were the same group of people who were then empowered by the risen Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to start the movement that continues to this day. And even when they were threatened with death, they would rather die than deny Christ. Why? How is that possible? It's because they believed death no longer had claim on them. They believed when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even though he perishes, he lives. They believed that. And this is the gospel message that they believed. And this is the gospel message we are invited to enter into. We're invited to enter into the cross of Good Friday and claim that was my sin, that was my death, that was my curse. He took it all for me. That was what I deserved. And we, we enter into that. And when we unite ourselves with the cross, we put our faith in Christ, then we get the joy of uniting ourselves with the tomb, uniting ourselves with the resurrection, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ becomes my death, my burial, and my resurrection. His resurrection assures my resurrection. And it's in this moment It's in this moment right here where you see why you can't save yourself and where I see why I can't save myself because this is the moment where you see God's power is different than our power because when death comes for one of our loved ones, we do not have the power to do anything about it. We're powerless in the the face of death coming for one of our loved ones. 
But when death comes for one of Jesus' loved ones, Jesus has a claim on them that is greater than death's claim on them. Death is no longer the final word for Jesus' loved ones. Death is not the final authority for Jesus' loved ones. Death has been defeated when it comes to Jesus' loved ones. And that's what makes God's power so fundamentally different than our power. Because that power is available to us, now our deaths are a short goodbye, not a long goodbye. And sorrow now has the right to turn into laughter. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It doesn't mean we don't grieve. It just means we grieve hopefully. We will have tough times ahead of us. There will be many tears in our future. But we can face our sorrow with Easter hope. There is a defiant nature to our joy because the worst sorrow has been defeated on our behalf. So every time you cry, you are offered an opportunity to remember the hope of the end of the story. And in case you need reminding, I want to read to you the hope of the end of the story. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Amen and amen and amen. This is available to us. This is available to us if we would receive it. Author Brennan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, he says he's convinced that when we stand before God on judgment day, we will have to answer one question. That God will ask us, did you believe that I loved you? And that's the question in front of us right now. Did did you believe that I loved you? What What if Jesus, resurrected Christ, came to us right here in this moment, right here in our seats, what if he had a conversation with us and he said this, I, I know why you're crying. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, every moment of shame, every moment of dishonesty, every broken thing you've ever done. Right now, I am fully aware of every sin that has darkened your past and every struggle that is crippling your present. I know your shallow faith. I know your lack of prayer life. I know you're inconsistent in worship. I know all of it. And in spite of all of it, I'm standing in front of you saying, I dare you to believe that I love you just as you are. Not as you are going to be or not as you should be because you will never be as you should be. I love you. I know you have sacrificed for you. I have come to give you life. Jesus is coming to us saying eternity is at stake and I alone have the power over death. It has been proven by the empty tomb. You don't have to die. You don't have to perish. You can have eternal life, but you cannot get it on your own. Stop striving for something you can never achieve and something that's been offered to you in Christ. Stop trying to get it on your own and start believing that in my love, I achieved it for you. So I don't know how you came here, but I know this. Your issue isn't with the church. Your issue isn't with other Christians. Your issue isn't with your past. None of that stuff is hindering you today. Today, the question is, is Jesus who he says he is? 
And do you believe that he loves you and he sacrificed for you and that he's offering you life? You should look into following Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, you should be moved again by Jesus. Because he has proven in the resurrection that he can heal everything that's broken. He's proven that he alone can make all the sad things come untrue. So don't waste a moment. Repent, turn from your past, and move towards the resurrected Christ and believe. Because your eternity is at stake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the perfect life of Christ, the life that never sinned. We thank you that then his perfect life was substitutionarily given for us in the cross. God, we rejoice in that achievement. And then, God, we thank you that his body being put in the tomb was vicariously like our body being put in the tomb. And that his resurrection from the dead is now offered to us as the greatest invitation in the world. And so God, now I pray that we move towards the celebration of Easter. God, we look again and are overwhelmed again at the celebration of what you've offered us in Christ. God, now as we move towards baptism, I pray that your spirit would be moving in this place, God, changing hearts and drawing people to yourself. God, be among us. God, thank you for this moment just to sit in your presence to experience the joy of what you offer in Christ. We continue in worship and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.